Yo, yo, Pete Forsey, the podcast. We got episode seven. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to begin by apologizing, okay? I record this here um, on Thursday, February 21st, and I got to admit I'm under the weather, not feeling too great, and I was thinking about just blowing off the entire seventh episode, pushing it back to next week, but then I remember what my head coach said, my first college baseball coach. He told me, buddy, there ain't no days off in this world. Ain't no such thing as a day off. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to skip one episode. I put one episode out weekly. I'm going to get it done. And plus, there's just too much to talk about. We got too much going on, too much locally, a few national things, something I wasn't able to hit on last week that came out Friday. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about Colin Kaepernick. I'm going to talk about the AAF, Le'Veon Bell, where I think his suitors are and his future. I'm going to talk Carlos Martinez and the injury. He's going to be out two weeks. And then I'm going to talk Manny Machado. He got signed. But first, we have to talk about the most pressing topic that's going on in St. Louis. I will hit that now. Thank you for listening to Episode 7 of the podcast. I begin with what is all the rage in St. Louis, Missouri. The St. Louis Blues are going for 12 in a row this evening, February 21st. Down in Dallas, they take on the Stars and the Road Warriors that are the St. Louis Blues, 17-9-3, have a great shot at their 12th consecutive victory. Coming off an overtime win against the Maple Leafs, Ryan O'Reilly puts one top shelf for the game winner, and they are absolutely hot right now. On the heels of their new head coach, Craig Berube, they have turned things completely around, a 180 from when they were managed by head coach Mike Yo. A lot of talk, excuse me, a lot of talk of Joel. Joel, no, I'm not talking about Bennington, the new goaltender playing absolutely fabulous right now. I'm talking about all the way back in 2003, still on the minds of Blues fans and me in particular. Why in the hell did we fire Joel Quinville? Joel Quinville, of course, the Colorado Avalanche product. He was part of their 1996 Stanley Cup champion roster he was on their coaching staff and he parlayed that into a head coaching gig with the blues the blues went to seven consecutive playoffs playoff appearances and then of course quinville was erroneously fired during the 2003-2004 season when at the time they were on their way to not making the playoffs quinville then would return to the avalanche for a short stint as their head coach And then he would go on to the Blackhawks, of course, where he would win three Stanley Cups, 2010, 2012, and 2015. I believe those were the years, but nonetheless, three Stanley Cup championship years for Quinville. I still don't get it. That's back when I was heavy, heavy, heavy watcher of the NHL. Watched almost every Blues game. Had some absolute studs on that team. Al McGinnis, Chris Pronger, Fred Brathwaite, Tyson Nash. Just some absolute dudes. And Quinville had those guys playing hard. Very happy for the Blues. Going for 12 in a row tonight. I think they get it done down in Dallas. Playing excellent on the road. But I still want to know why in the hell did the Blues fire Quinville? I'll never understand it. This weekend, I was with some friends, big Blues fans. They were talking about the goaltender, Bennington. Yeah, he looks great. But the Joel that I want to talk about is not Bennington. It is Quinville. 
and I'm still searching for answers as to why Quinville was fired back in 2003. I remember I was I was outside. I was 2003. I want to say I was how many years is that? I was eight years old. Or excuse me, I was ten years old. Ten years old. I'm shooting hoops, and my dad runs outside, says Pete Quinville just got fired. And I'm still just flabbergasted now as much as I was then. I want to know why Quinville was fired. I want some answers. The Blues could have had their Stanley Cup championship by now. Someone please offer me a solution. Staying local here, I shift down to Jupiter, Florida, where the St. Louis Cardinals, of course, have spring training going on. And it was reported two days ago Carlos Martinez will be shut down for two weeks due to weakness in his shoulder. And this will delay his buildup for the 2019 season, and it couldn't be more of a backbreaker for Carlos Martinez and quite possibly the Cardinals and their team itself. Listen, nothing's happened yet, okay? Nothing has happened as far as play is concerned, into which wins and losses are affected. But I just can't help but think... I can't help but think of all the times I read, wherever you get your news, whether it's the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for those that are local, whether it's online at MLB.com, wherever you like to get your Cardinals news, how many times do you hear from coaches, players, at the beginning of the season, middle of the season, and at the conclusion of the season that, tr- that trace it back all the way to spring training and a delayed start or a disruption in routine? that threw off an entire season. That's all I can think about when I heard that on Tuesday with Carlos Martinez. And it's not like Carlos Martinez came up and felt a sharp shooting pain down his arm that he did not experience before. It, it was said by Mike Schilt on Tuesday that structurally the shoulder is fine. It's as strong as 2016, they said, when Carlos, of course, had a great season. So this tells me that the weakness in his shoulder is a lack of attention to detail to prepare your body for a season. That is truly unbelievable. Carlos Martinez, who in his final 13 starts, in 12 of them, he did not go past the sixth inning. He was then shifted to the bullpen for three weeks, the final three weeks of the 2018 season. He was spectacular. But of course, he is paid, and he was expected to be a starter for the Cardinals. It's amazing. One 200-inning season by Carlos that some people like to throw out the ace label for him. Carlos Martinez is not an ace. And maybe I will have to shift what constitutes an ace with the way pitchers are used nowadays. Very rarely do pitchers go 200 innings. But in my mind, the best pitchers pitch the most. And 200 innings is usually a good benchmark for that. So I am open to changing my interpretation of the criteria when looking at an ace. Carlos Martinez displayed once again by showing up out of shape to spring training the mental lapses he has all the time. Carlos Martinez has been criticized as a horrible fielder by those that watch the Cardinals closely. It's pretty much true. He he jumps off the mound like he did a rail of cocaine 
right before the pitch was thrown. And a lot of times it leads to errant throws, at least to him not setting his feet, and air-mailing air throws over the first baseman's head or whichever base he is throwing to. There are mental lapses just about every fifth start with Carlos Martinez when he's pitching a gem and then all of a sudden things unravel and you get four runs off three walks and two innings in the middle of a game and the Cardinals lose. Carlos Martinez is a very effective player. Don't get it twisted. I'm not here to say that Carlos Martinez is a disaster because he's not. He's actually quite good when comparable to the rest of the MLB. And that's what his supporters always point to. Well, look at these numbers stacked up against this guy in the rest of the league since 2015. Yeah, okay, great. You're right. He's very good. But he also could be a lot better. He could be top shelf status if he just did a few simple things like concentrate and focus. Stuff that doesn't show up in the stat sheet. Stuff that you see with your eyes when you watch the game. I had a little exchange with uh, someone I know. uh, Brendan Schaefer, KMOV, covers the Cardinals really great. And I mentioned that any time I watch this player, I think that's what Carlos Martinez should be. Same type of stuff. Happen to be from the same country, both right-handed pitchers. Luis Severino, for those baseball fans that watch the game often. Luis Severino is exactly what Carlos Martinez should be. He does everything that Carlos Martinez does, but he has bulldog mentality. He's locked in from pitch one to the final pitch, and he empties out every single time. He just got rewarded with a four-year, $40 million contract, and of course, Carlos, Carlos Martinez already has his contract, and since he's being paid like a top-shelf reliever, $11.5 million for Carlos Martinez, we could be looking at a shift to the bullpen simply because the attention span, the mental capacity to bring it each time out, it's leaving a lot to be desired. Of course, again, what he's bringing is plenty good. It is plenty good. But almost because the Cardinals have plenty of arms, they have a lot of promising arms it's going to beg the question whether the Cardinals can replace Carlos Martinez's production as a starter and if they think they can do that they may very well gamble on moving Carlos Martinez to the bullpen to optimize his strengths and that could be good when it's all said and done for the Cardinals Carlos Martinez again displaying what he lacks as a player overall he shows up out of shape And it's only the latest with Carlos Martinez and what he lacks above the shoulders. Moving on to the biggest story in Major League Baseball, Manny Machado has signed with the San Diego Padres. Yes, city's fine, the America's finest city or whatever they call themselves has themselves a star. Very happy for the Padres. I really, it's a good fit, obviously, just because they need talented players and they really need a key cog in the middle of the lineup. Manny Machado gives them that. He's 26 years old, a 10-year contract, $300 million. Those are two of the elements that Manny Machado was seeking. He wanted 10 years, and he wanted to have a three in the total number of dollars that he was receiving. He got that. If you listen to the pod earlier, I said 
all Manny Machado is doing right now is taking, taking, taking. He needs to give a little bit. Well, what he sacrificed was winning, at least in the immediate future. I don't see the Padres being uh, any sort of contender this year. And then also, I think he gave up the position of shortstop. He was very bullish at first on remaining at short, but I think he said, ah, you know what? Third base is just fine. I'll go ahead and do that, particularly because San Diego has one of the top prospects that we've seen in a while. Of course, if you follow baseball, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. for the Blue Jays is being heralded as possibly the best prospect ever, which could be true. He's one of those generational guys. If you listen to me or hear me talk about baseball, I will trade prospects more easily than others, but I would not trade Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and it's the same with Fernando Tatis, who is in the Padres organization and plays shortstop. Manny Machado balked. He said, fine, third base is for me. That's what I am safely assuming. I think he's going to play third base. But what he did get, he got 10 years, $300 million, and the Padres have a mainstay in their lineup. And I think it's great. I think the Padres really have done a great job at supplementing their entire system. You may remember in 2015 when the Padres traded and signed a bunch of, I won't say big name, a few of them were big name, Justin Upton, Matt Kemp, Craig Kimbrell, Derek Norris at the time, he was a catcher. They brought in a lot of guys that screamed, win now mode. This was A.J. Preller, the general manager's first year on the job. And people said, wow, the Padres are really going for it. But when you really dug deep beneath the surface, that wasn't really a winning team. Not at the beginning of the 2015 season. That team really wasn't athletic. They had guys playing out of position. You had Will Myers in center field. You took on the salary of Melvin Upton Jr. or BJ, whichever you want to call him. You had dead money already on there. And you had a whole lot of strikeouts on that team. They did not put the ball in play. I did not think it was going to work. And they had a so-so season in 2015. What it was was an illusion by A.J. Preller, the man who helped construct those great Ranger teams down in Texas those teams that went to the World Series in 2010, 2011. It was a great job by A.J. Preller to infuse confidence in a fan base and organization from the moment he walked in the door. He said, hey, I'm going to bring in all these guys. We're going to try and catch lightning in a bottle in 2015. If it works, great. If not, what I have done is acquired assets. Individually, I have a whole bunch of players that can return future assets for me. Justin Upton, of course, he was traded. Craig Kimbrell, he was traded. Derek Norris, he was let go. He he was traded uh, over to the West Coast again, I believe. I think he returned to the, uh, to the A's. He's no longer in the game. But there was a series of salary swaps, and really, A.J. Preller, what he did by bringing in all those names in 2015 is he acquired assets to get future assets down the line. He brought in players that were good now, but of course weren't going to be helping them as we sit here today, four years later. And what we have by A.J. Preller is a very, very good job. He has stacked talent not only in the upper levels, AAA, AA, they are loaded at the lower levels too. Very good arms. 
very, very good arms. He took an approach that was quality over quantity. When he traded Craig Kimbrell, when he traded Drew Pomeranz, these are both deals done with Dave Dombrowski over with the Red Sox. When he traded Justin Upton, he said, I'm getting one of your top guys. I'm not taking a series of guys that I have to coach up and develop myself. I want the talented players. And he did that for a series of three years. He took on a, he took on some money to pay guys not to play for him. Probably the most notable and one that I remember. Oliver Vernon. He's the Cuban guy that didn't pan out. And unfortunately, he was involved with the domestic violence dispute. He was the one that got a guaranteed $60 million from the Braves. He took on that salary, traded Matt Kemp back to the Braves, or not back to the Braves for the first time, back to Atlanta, where Kemp is from. And A.J. Preller has done a good job. The latest is Manny Machado. But really, this is a series in the making. He's done an excellent job getting top-end talent and building something not only at the upper levels, but also the lower levels. I'm going to be watching a lot of San Diego Padres baseball this year. Manny Machado is the latest example. A.J. Preller and what he's done the last four years is the main example. Look out for the Padres here in the future. Moving on to football. You didn't think I was going to go a whole podcast without talking about football, did you? I begin not with the NFL, who of course has my attention 365 every single day. I start with the American, or the Alliance American Football, the Alliance as they're calling it now. And I I watched it a little bit. I watched the Apollos and, uh, what's San Antonio? They they got all those goofy names like, like any given Sunday. Or whatever, but uh, they got the ugly uniforms and everything. But the play was not ugly at all. At least I don't think. I watched a little bit this Sunday. I was watching Spurrier's team, uh, the Orlando Apollos, and you know I came away impressed. Not impressed with you know exactly you know the players necess- necessarily. Like no one really stuck out to me. They all looked like guys who were on you know the fringe of the NFL. Um, it looked like preseason football to me. It looked like preseason football. Um, these teams haven't been together all that much. I think they only said a month, which I thought was kind of a risky, you know, gamble to begin with. You you get coaches and players together only for thirty days and expect them to play uh, anything anything near what a consumer needs to have their attention span, like you know, grab for a little bit. I thought that would be hard. It looks like preseason football, but it is enough. I think that there is somewhat of a future for the uh, the AAF. Notably, I think they're doing a good job of understanding that they cannot compete with the NFL. Ultimately, I don't think anyone can, and I'm going to talk about the XFL here in a second. But the AAF seems to know its place. They're staying in their lane. They seem to understand that this is just a developmental league for the players that don't get a shot. The practice league players of the NFL, or at least of that caliber, who just need game reps, who for whatever reason weren't given the opportunity or weren't good enough for the opportunity, and they just need to play. And I'm seeing good coaches, Mike Martz, Mike Singletary, Dennis Erickson, even Spurrier, who have been around the NFL game in one capacity or another. Either a long-tenured head coach like Mike Martz, played and had a fabulous career like Singletary, or Spurrier, who's been around the coaches and obviously has a wealth of experience. 
and how to play the game. I think it's good because I saw some things that weren't very college. You know, I saw some wider splits, some deeper route, some deeper route uh, meshes and uh, play designs. It, it really looked like a league that was developing and not one that was trying to, you know, it, no teams out there were trying to just to like win the game. You could really tell that the play calling, at least offensively, defense kind of has its limitations because they got that thing where you can't you can't rush more than five. But offensively, you know, I, I I was looking at Martz, and I was saying, man, he's really just dialing up here to try and see what this player can do or that player can do, and it, it's fun. It's fun only for the consumer, but it's also fun for the growth of that for that guy, whoever maybe they're prioritizing at that moment. I think it's got um I think it's got some potential. Because they understand their role. They're cutting out all the shit that really doesn't matter for a situation like this. Like, yeah, get rid of kickoffs. It doesn't matter. Force them to go for two. Create more football plays. These these are guys that need to practice making football plays. So they say, hey, you have to go for two. You can kick field goals, and then you, you, you kick it if you're down by 16, I believe it is, to get the ball back later on in the game if you want an onside kick. I think this is really good. This is good for the players that don't get the opportunity at the NFL. And it just kind of reminds me that so many times, so much is just your environment. In any sport, I usually don't cross comparison to any sport. But I one thing that Matt Carpenter said with the St. Louis Cardinals one point really stuck out to me one year. He was talking about a former TCU player that was in Cardinals camp. Ultimately, that player, he didn't make the team. And I can't even remember his name. But what he did point out was that so much is just your opportunity in sports. So much is the moment, the time and place that you are. And he went on to describe his career. And this is at the point, this was like two years ago, 2017, spring training this this time of year. Matt Carpenter said, he goes, yeah, I think about all the time, what if the Cardinals re-signed Albert Pools? He goes, would I be playing first base now? Would they have shifted me to the outfield? Would I then still be the type of hitter that I am? He went on to explain how the pressure of learning second base took pressure off at the plate because he was so focused on being a good fielder that all of his energy, once he got to the batter's box, he didn't feel any uh, any added pressure to perform because he was so dialed in on the other side of the diamond. You know, all these things can sometimes have a domino effect, and in baseball, I think maybe that's less the case just because, you know, the nature of the game. You can you can find something in a player with all the numbers that we have now that will give you a hint of optimism that he can play at the next level. But in football, man, I tell you what, you can get buried very quickly, particularly at the quarterback position. If you have seven... Well, I shouldn't say seven offensive coordinators. If you have three offensive coordinators in three years, <laughs> like you are so far behind before you even start. If you don't have an offensive line to begin with to protect you, and you have a new head coach, and you have three offensive coordinator, three offensive coordinators in three years, it's just like you you don't have a shot. I remember Jason Campbell, drafted by the Washington Redskins. He was one of those. Never had a shot. I thought I thought he was solid. I think if he was brought into a different environment, things might be different. And the cool thing about this alliance 
I think it really understands development. They have coaches that are in it for the players, in it for the teaching. They're not here to show you how good of a head coach they are. They're simply here to teach and to elevate the players that can play at the next level and help them. And then, of course, there are other players who they just want to play, they want to get a paycheck, and the 75000 or whatever it comes out to per year, you know, that's earning a solid living doing something that you probably enjoy. I think the AAF has a leg up on the XFL because the XFL is trying to compete. They're over here saying, we're going to give the game back to the fans. They're already asking for things that fans, what do you want to see different from football? They're trying to change football. Well, that's a risky proposition, if you ask me. Because when you change it, you risk you risk taking things away that fans enjoy. Maybe you ultimately change something that they find enjoyable, but you could also in turn take away something that is very key to the pleasure of football. Something that is unearthed by making such change. I don't know about the XFL. I don't know. It will depend on the changes that we're talking about, but they seem to be in direct competition with the NFL, which the NFL, for all the uh, uproar that we've heard in recent years about declined ratings and concussions taking interest out of it and just the dynamic of relationships between everyone, seeing that the NFL is going to be less popular. Well, you know what? They still blow everyone out of the water in revenue. They're still still doing very well. So I don't know any, I don't know about any league trying to compete with the NFL and actually succeeding. So in that regard, I don't like the outlook from the beginning on the XFL. Will I watch it? Yes, it's Vince McMahon. He's compelling. But overall, the AAF has it right. I think they know what they are. They're staying in their lane, and they're doing the right things here from the start. I like the AAF at the beginning. I'm going to watch some more next weekend. We'll see where it goes. But from the start, they look great. Okay, switching over to the NFL. This week... Monday, or no, was it Tuesday? Monday or Tuesday, franchise tag um, opportunities were given for the NFL teams. As of this recording here on Thursday, no player has been uh, hit with the franchise tag or the transition tag. Not really a surprise. They usually, uh, you know, out of respect for the player, um, they typically don't do that until, you know, the last day or so. At the You know, that way they can open up contract talks and uh, get lead to an extension, which the player ultimately wants. Uh, with the team that they're currently at. They use a franchise tag at the last minute. That's why you have a deadline. The only time you really see it is when a team is, you know, trying to be petty, basically, you know, whatever the kids are calling it nowadays. And I thought that might be, uh, I thought that might happen this year with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I thought GM Kevin Colbert or Colbert might um, do that this year with Le'Veon Bell just to uh, ruffle the feathers a little bit, but he went ahead and said, no, hey, this is over. We've had this drama long enough. We're, we're not hitting we're not hitting Le'Veon with the tag now. And uh, so Le'Veon will be a free agent. He will be a free agent, and it's going to be interesting what his market looks like. Me personally, I think there's going to be silence. I think there's going to be silence at the beginning, and he is not going to sign initially in free agency. He's not going to be one of the first to sign. I was texting a buddy. He's a Steelers fan, so he has uh, you know, specific interest in this. And he was just asking, you know, hey, what do you think 
Le'Veon, uh, what do you think he's going to sign for? Where do you think he's going to sign? And really, all I could come up with is like four teams. I had four teams that I thought really legitimately might have interest. I came up with the Texans, Niners, Bengals, and Packers. Of course, based off cap space movement and movement in trades, this could all change. But since free agency is the method that teams use first to build their rosters for the upcoming season, these are the four that I landed on. The top three in cap space, the teams that had the money to do it, I don't really see it happening. The Colts, Jets, and Bills, yeah, you could say that they need a running back, each of them. In fact, they probably all do. Maybe not Buffalo with LaShawn McCoy, but I think I think he's gonna they're gonna move on from him. The Colts, Jets, and Bills, cap space in order, 107, 102, and 83. They got the money to pay him. But you know what I see when I hear all those teams? I hear culture. I hear culture from the Colts and how much they really pointed to that and their success this past year. The Jets, they just got Adam Gaze. And of course, he was the guy who called out his players during the 2017 season. And he was, and he said, hey, we need to take our work home with us a little bit more. Basically saying, my players don't give a shit. So what did he do? He gutted all the guys, Sue, Pouncey, Landry, and he brought in, quote-unquote, culture guys. Frank Gore, Robert Quinn, etc. So I don't really see the Jets picking him up, despite having the space. And then the Bills, Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott might be the best coach that doesn't win a lot of games, which I know is silly to say. But I'm a big fan of Sean McDermott. I think he's kind of, he's taken a different approach. I've actually had the benefit of hearing from someone firsthand kind of what the Bills are doing. And I'll probably talk about that on a later podcast. But they're kind of, they're they're the future of analytics, basically. And I'll talk a little bit more on that again, probably in a future podcast. But Sean McDermott, I, uh, I like what he has brewing there. I think he is a good coach, despite not winning a lot of games. I don't see him bringing in someone like Le'Veon Bell. And then if we continue on down the line, Cleveland, John Dorsey, history of taking risk on quote-unquote character guys. And don't get it twisted, Le'Veon's a character, you know, question. Maybe he doesn't have any criminal activity. He's got a couple of suspensions um, for pot and whatnot, but there's no question that you're you're testing your locker room and uh, you're giving your head coach a test by bringing in someone like Le'Veon Bell. Then we go down to number five. That's San Francisco. One of the teams listed, number six, Houston. They have 76 and 74 in cap space. And uh, then we got the Raiders. I think that's a possibility, but I don't know if they're going to shell out big money with where they're at. At the running back position, you got Seattle. Just used a first-round pick on Penny. Number nine, Cincinnati. I could see it. They got Joe Mixon. But I think Matt LaFleur could see the benefit of having two running backs, just like the Saints, that are threats both in the air and on the ground I could see Cincinnati not that they're going to try and stick it to him maybe Mike Brown might have that uh he might be compelled to do that but I think schematically it could be good for the Bengals I like him in Cincinnati potentially they got the wherewithal to do it their cap space is 51 million but then Houston I just think they need a running back Bill O'Brien I think he could manage someone like Le'Veon Bell and then the Packers Matt LaFleur, new head coach. Basically, I think Le'Veon, for this situation, he has to go to a head coach. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm sick as a dog here. Matt LaFleur, 
I think he's a perfect head coach for Le'Veon Bell. I think Le'Veon Bell needs a head coach that relates to him a little bit more. Someone that's younger. Someone that understands how he thinks. How he goes about his life a little bit more. You need someone... I mean, you need a football guy. Don't worry. You need you need a franchise that needs the need and has the structure to help Le'Veon succeed and to shell out big money. But I, I think the pool's limited. I really do. I, I'm on those four teams. I'm on the Niners. I'm on the Bengals, Packers, and Texans. Because... Not only do you need the need at running back, you need the dollars. And if Le'Veon Bell is still talking about record-breaking money, he he wanted to he said he wanted to break records at the running back position because he feels like, in his words, he's Steph Curry. He's changing the position, which is fucking total nonsense if you ask me. I remember, he was talking about the way his patient way and how he uh, runs the football out of the backfield. And he's, he. He likened himself to Steph Curry, because I guess Steph Curry's changed the game with three-pointers and whatnot. I don't think Le'Veon has changed the game necessarily, and I don't think he's going to get record-breaking money, especially after he passed up 14.5 guaranteed dollars. 14.5 million guaranteed dollars. What? Like, that was so dumb. That was so dumb. 14.5 million in the hole. And you now have to make that back on your next contract plus more. So based off my simple math, I think Le'Veon has to get 60 guaranteed over the first three years with 25 to 30 of that being in signing bonus from his future team to basically, or not project, but to stay with what he wanted, which is record-breaking at the position and exceed the total value at exceed the total guarantees in the history of the NFL. I don't see it happen for Le'Veon. You got a guy who basically will talk about contract demands whenever he so pleases. That was apparent with the Steelers. You got a guy who's been suspended twice, and he goes through social media doing his business just like his teammate or former teammate, Antonio Brown. Look, Le'Veon, great player. I think there's only a few teams that really need him that will shell out big dollars for him. I don't think it's going to be record-breaking. I think the Niners, Bengals, Texans, Packers, those are ones to look out for. I think they got the structure. I think they got the head coach. I think they got the need to sign Le'Veon Bell, but ultimately I don't think Le'Veon get, gets what he wants, and that's big dollars, big record-breaking dollars, but he will get signed, and it will be later on in free agency. I shift and I end this podcast with one of the more popular topics in sport and in America. I will speak on where I stand with Colin Kaepernick, his NFL future, and my thoughts on the whole situation that really has arose since August 2016. I begin with this. This is a sports show. You will always hear me talk about sports. You will not hear hip-hop. You will not really hear my personal life. You will always hear sports on this show. So for those of you that think I'm going down a political avenue, I don't really see it to be the case because Colin Kaepernick is an NFL player. It relates to the sports world. And I will talk about what people want to hear in regards to sports. So I really don't feel like I'm going down a political avenue here. So if you think that's the case and that's fine, feel free to shut off your phone. You don't have to listen but I will be talking about such issues. 
I begin with this. The lawsuit between Colin Kaepernick and the NFL, of course he sued the league, it's been resolved. Part of it is that any terms or any uh, anything discussed in the agreement or in the settlement, I should say, will not be discussed publicly. So we don't know what Cap settled for, but it sounds like, if we're reading the tea leaves correctly, he took a whole bunch of money from the NFL. Some people think he sold out on his cause. Personally, I don't really see it that way. You know, he, he took the money from the NFL, and he sounds like he took a boatload of money. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You're sticking it to the league and saying, hey, give me freaking dollars here. Um, now, of course, he can't talk about it. Um, that's part of the agreement. But, you know, I think uh, I think he did pretty good for the lawsuit because, really, I didn't think he had a snowball's chance in hell to really get anything from the league. But it sounds like there was enough evidence that the league said, okay, okay, let's just freaking end this, take the money, but shut up. So good for Cap. Um, in my mind, I like I don't care. Like, you know, get paid, man. You know, I'm, I'm all about, you know, if you can get paid in this world one way or another, like good for you. Um, I don't have any qualms with him taking money for the league. Um, you know, I just smart business, smart business in my mind. Uh, I, I don't have any qualms with that. Um, despite, you know, what he's trying to like, get done here and bring to light to our nation, but more talking on what this all means, what his future is, and kind of just like my personal opinion on the whole situation with Kaepernick. Let's, um, let's start with this. Colin Kaepernick in 2014 was in his final year with Jim Harbaugh. It's hard to probably trace back this far, but Colin Kaepernick, during this 2014 season, this was the first year of his big contract, $126 million in total value. But of course, anyone that knows the layout of that structure, it was basically year to year after that first season in 2014. Basically a very long prove-it deal from Colin Kaepernick after that first season. He got a lot of money up front, but after that first season, the 49ers could get out from under it fairly easily. 2014 was a season in which the Niners went 8-8. Eight and eight. There was a huge rift between the GM, Trent Baalke, Jim Harbaugh, and even Colin Kaepernick. From the coaches, and of course it's anonymous reporting, anonymous sources from journalists, but this is when Colin Kaepernick and his desire to play first surfaced. It was from coaches, it was from players. Even Jim Harbaugh himself never was completely sold on Colin Kaepernick and his viability and consistency to hold up in the NFL. I talked about the Ravens and Lamar Jackson this past season and how the offense they were running was merely a novelty. Their success lied in originality. That's exactly what happened with Colin Kaepernick. Late in the 2012 season, and then into the 2013 season, Colin Kaepernick was new and fresh to NFL defenses that it was hard for them to game plan and adjust and to properly execute when facing a quarterback and overall offense like the 49ers. By 2014, we saw it wear off. It had run its course. Colin Kaepernick and his deficiencies as a quarterback, they were shown. Colin Kaepernick, 
a guy with not very great accuracy who does not change the plane on his throws, who only throws 95-mile-an-hour fastballs, who cannot beat man coverage, who does not know how to play from behind, who does not know how to manage a game very well. It was all exposed by 2014. For a season and a half, the 49ers built off a roster that was very complete. Great offensive line, Frank Gore in his heyday, Michael Crabtree, slew of wide receivers, excellent defense. They had a complete team to support Colin Kaepernick and to play very high winning football. They went to the Super Bowl. But by 2014, when the roster started to change a little bit, when defenses had time on their side, time elapsed to where they could adjust, Colin Kaepernick was not effective. Now, Colin Kaepernick certainly displayed some things that are that are worthy of recognition. Great game instincts. I always thought Colin Kaepernick had great game instincts. Probably lied in the fact that he played a lot of college games. He obviously had great vision as a runner. That's what really birthed his playmaking ability. He has excellent playmaking ability due to his athleticism. And of course, he has a power of an arm, which leads to deep ball potency. Those are some of the strengths of Colin Kaepernick. But overall, Colin Kaepernick, the tape doesn't lie. The tape does not lie in that Colin Kaepernick is a fringe talent at the NFL level. Now, some people will point to and say, come on, he made it to a Super Bowl, led his team. Okay, just like I got got done talking about, that 49ers team was raw. Patrick Willis, Dante Whitner, Alden Smith, Justin Smith, okay? I could go on and on about that defense, that offensive line that had, what, three Pro Bowlers on it? They were excellent, that entire team. Colin Kaepernick had some excellent games. We know Green Bay, and he just ran all up and down the field at Candlestick against the Packers. He had some great games. But as far as leading, I saw some spurts. I saw some games. But overall, I saw team football. And the overall ancillary parts added up. That led to the 49ers making the Super Bowl. Just to reiterate, I haven't even gotten to August 2016. But to continue, August, or excuse me, 2014 is when it first started to surface after he signed his big contract that Colin Kaepernick had turned into a diva. Braylon Edwards would later go on in September 2016, and he would say, that's when things began to change. Colin Kaepernick was not the same, ship on the shoulder, out to prove that he can play in this league. He had signed his contract. That's when the Bose headphones went on. And down the road in 2015, when Tom Sula was the head coach, that was the headphones era. Which, for those that don't remember, Colin Kaepernick reportedly, by numerous sources from the Bay Area, was wearing headphones, head down, not talking to anyone during the 2015 season. He would later be benched in favor of Blaine Gabbard. So we're not even into the 2016 season yet. 
and Colin Kaepernick's desire to play and his desire to be great is already in question. And his 2015 season, it ended with a shoulder surgery in November, and then in January, there was a right thumb and left knee surgery from Colin Kaepernick. So now we fast forward to August 2016. It was August 26 that it was first reported that Colin Kaepernick sat during the national anthem. It would later be brought to light that Colin Kaepernick, this was not the first time he sat. Two preseason games before that, he was sitting on the bench. However, he was in a track suit because he was not clear to play yet after, because of the injuries that I just mentioned. But it was August 26th that we first found out that Colin Kaepernick chose to not stand for the national anthem. We go into the season, into October. Obviously, I, I will skip over how people felt about it, who said what, as far as from a public perspective. But it's all October 12, 2016. Colin Kaepernick decides to restructure his contract with the San Francisco 49ers. He, desi- he decides to forfeit 14.5 in injury guarantees for that season. He does this so that way he is afforded the opportunity to showcase himself to other teams and he restructures his contract under these terms so that he can decline or accept a player option of $16.5 million. And if he decides to decline it, he is then a free agent. That's ultimately what Colin Kaepernick did on October 12, 2016. It was a few days later Colin Kaepernick made his first start for the San Francisco 49ers. So, Colin Kaepernick got his first start after he decides to restructure his contract and forfeit injury guarantees. That tells us the 49ers had no intention on playing Colin Kaepernick because there is no way in hell they wanted to get locked in to $14.5 million guaranteed the following season in 2017. Colin Kaepernick, excuse me, Colin Kaepernick would then go on to go 0-6 the rest of the way until the Chicago game in December, Chip Kelly would bench him in favor of Blaine Gabbard. You will hear me say all the time, a, a record from a quarterback is not a good indi- indicator of their play. But 0-6 tells me that you're obviously not an otherworldly talent or skilled player enough to win a game. Typically, the very good quarterbacks, the great, the elite, they don't go 0-6 under any circumstances. And that is not an indictment on Kaepernick. But I think we can all agree, given 0-6, he is certainly not great or elite. So we'll just throw that in there for now. Colin Kaepernick would go on to win one more game against the Los Angeles Rams in 2016. And then, of course, he would decline the player option off a new regime that comes in, Kyle Shanahan, John Lynch. And he expected to be signed by an NFL team. He obviously has not, as we sit here today in 2019, February. Colin Kaepernick was, he was brought in by the Seattle Seahawks between the time he elected to hit free agency and now. He was brought in by the Seattle Seahawks, and the Seattle Seahawks said, Colin Kaepernick's a great player, 
He's a starting caliber player in this league. This is head coach Pete Carroll. And someone will give him a shot. Of course, no one has given him a shot. But these comments by Pete Carroll brought up significant outroar. They brought up significant outroar because they said, Coach Pete Carroll said he's a starter. Why wouldn't they sign him then? Don't you want great players on your team? Something to that effect. But really what Pete Carroll did is he brought to light exactly the reality of the quarterback position in the NFL. You do not want two starters on your team. They have Russell Wilson, someone in my mind who's going to be a Hall of Famer. The last thing Pete Carroll wants to do is to bring in a player that potentially questions his power. Tony Romo once said, and he's a man that speaks from experience, he said oftentimes quarterback changes, it's the players who make those decisions. Because once the players, once it's permeating through the locker room that they don't believe the man under center is the right man on the roster, the coach runs the risk of losing the locker room. So in that regard, Pete Carroll was just telling us the reality of the NFL You do not want someone just as good or someone who is capable of being a starter as your backup quarterback. You want someone that can go two and two in case your starter gets hurt. And that's what you want at the backup position. You do not want someone to challenge your starting quarterback. The Seattle Seahawks are the only team that brought him in for a visit, Colin Kaepernick. And they are one of the teams, the few, that schematically fit what's Colin Kaepernick uh, can do at the NFL level. Excuse me. The other team was the Baltimore Ravens, two teams that I thought, out of three, were the correct fit for Colin Kaepernick. Of course, the Ravens discussed it. So the two teams, two out of three in my mind, at the time of 2017, that fit what Colin Kaepernick could bring to the NFL level, they discussed it. They considered it. But after his girlfriend posted a picture on the internet that depicted Ray Lewis as a loyal slave to owner Steve Bishotti of the Baltimore Ravens, the Ravens took it off the table. If you want to Google the picture, it's of Ray Lewis, Steve Bishotti, and a similar picture side-by-side to the film Django Unchained. Leonardo DiCaprio, Samuel L. Jackson. Ray Lewis would say that ended any discussion of sign signing Colin Kaepernick. The third team, who I thought schematically would fit, and at present day is an option for Colin Kaepernick, is the Carolina Panthers. They did not bring in Colin to potentially sign him as a backup because, of course, they have Cam Newton, and I think it falls under the same category as the Seahawks. They have a starter. They don't want to cause any strife in the locker room. Having said everything that I have at this point, Schematically, Colin Kaepernick only fits a few teams. His desire to play was questioned early on in 2014 and 15. You throw in what he also brings, the protests. I think it is football malpractice to sign Colin Kaepernick in the NFL. I do. If any GM 
were to come to me as an NFL owner, hypothetically, I would laugh if they said or asked, can I sign Colin Kaepernick? Not only is Colin Kaepernick not worth the headache that he brings, but ultimately, I don't think what Colin Kaepernick does is appropriate. And let's be clear. Do I feel insulted? Do I feel it's unpatriotic that Colin Kaepernick takes a knee during the National Anthem? No. I don't. I do not care one bit that he takes a knee during the National Anthem. I feel... I do not feel insulted one bit. I don't feel it is unpatriotic for him to do that. Absolutely not. But what I do have a problem with Colin Kaepernick doing is bringing personal agenda while he's on the clock. There is no job in America that allows you to bring personal agendas while you're while you're working. It would be totally inappropriate, whatever job that you do, school teacher, mailman, salesman, whatever, during the hours of 9 to 5, or whatever the hours are of the NFL, much different, it's inappropriate to bring personal agendas to the attention because it's a reflection of the company, the organization. Now some will say, that the platform that the NFL has, the players, the coaches, executives, that it's a responsibility for them to use that because they are influencers. If you believe that, you can stop right now. We can stop having the discussion because we fundamentally disagree. I fundamentally disagree that there is a responsibility if you have such a large platform, if you have such a medium that is of influence. I do not agree. I do not agree that you have to utilize it. If you want to utilize it, that's fine. However, I believe it should be when you're away from the facility, away from your job, when you are not on the clock. I would have no problem with Colin Kaepernick, whether it was protest or whatever he wanted to bring to light in this nation, if he chose to use the resources that he has as an NFL player, the access to reporters, the mediums that he can bring to light on the internet and the influence he brings there, if he said, hey, after practice, I'm going to do a one-on-one sit-down with Josina Anderson at my house. If he wanted to utilize that outside the facility, I'm okay with that. Everyone has their life. Everyone has their what they do when they're not at work. That's completely fine. However, when, you're, when you have the shoulder pads on, when you strap on the helmet, you do not bring personal agenda to the company because you are a reflection of our organization. So just to be clear... I think that since what he is doing, his personal agenda, since it's so divisive, it is divisive. You are either on one side or you're on the other most of the time. I think it is football malpractice to sign Colin Kaepernick. One, he's not only a fringe talent, 
His desire has not only been questioned all the way back to five years ago, almost. He brings a nationally divisive element to hiring him as an employee. It would be absolutely insubordinate for a GM to go to an owner and say, I want to sign Colin Kaepernick. I would not touch him. People always point to the other players that have gotten chances in the NFL that are not as good. And every time I just point to the fact that they don't bring anything else. They don't bring anything else. They do not alienate half of the people that can that contribute to your business. That's why they get a shot. That's why they deserve a shot. I just came off a podcast talking about context is everything. You're not signing up players in the NFL. You're signing up human beings and everything that comes with them. Everything that comes with them. Colin Kaepernick, if he were a more talented, skilled, and productive player, if he were, say, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, and he brought this same off-the-field element to him, I would be having a different discussion. I would weigh differently the -the off-the-field element that he brought with it. It would still be inappropriate, but if I was an NFL owner, I would not have the same viewpoint as I do with Kaepernick. Kaepernick is a fringe talent. Do not get it twisted. The tape does not lie. Do not go off accomplishments. Do not go off statistics that are reflective of team efforts. This is where I stand on the Colin Kaepernick situation. I love the healthy dialogue that people have with this. I do not like the disrespect a lot of times that I hear with conversations on this. But this is where I stand. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on it. I think it's all healthy when we discuss Colin Kaepernick and the NFL. Okay, y'all, and that will wrap up the longest podcast that we've had so far in our short time together. I appreciate you all for listening. I feel like we had some great topics today, some great discussion. I really want to hear your feedback. Please comment, give me questions, statements, whatever you have to say to me after this seventh episode of the podcast. Please let me know what you're thinking, okay? What do you want to hear more of? What do you want to hear less of? Where am I wrong? What am I not seeing? Please let me know what you're thinking. I appreciate you all listening. It really means everything to me. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go watch the Blues later on tonight. I got a buddy coming into town. He's passing through for business. We're going to go watch the game, see if they can ring off number 12 in a row down in Dallas. Thank you so much. Remember, iTunes, subscribe, five-star review would really mean a lot to me. And also at Pete4C, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, obviously. You can find me there. I'll be posting stuff. Have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll see you next Friday.